Hey everybody, welcome to The Afterword, where we talk about what we didn't get to talk about in the weekend's message. My name is Dave Tish. This week, Jay Kim stops by and we get to talk about the very first week of our brand new sermon series called How Not to Read the Bible. Now, this sermon series is based on the book by the same title by our good friend Dan Kimball, who's not only a seminary professor, but a practicing theologian and pastor at Vintage Faith Church over in Santa Cruz, a great friend of ours. And Jan and I are going to talk about why this book is absolutely necessary. We're going to talk about how in the world you can make The Shining into a comedy, more on that later, and also you're going to get to find out what percentage of adults in the United States did not read a single book in the last year. That number is probably higher than you'd think. So cast your vote right now and we'll see if you're right. Okay, let's dive in to the afterword. All right, hey everyone, welcome to the afterword. I'm here with Jay. Jay, we're here. It's post Easter. It's the very first week of our brand new sermon series. It's like, yay, very exciting. Yeah, super exciting. Yeah, here we uh, are. Easter awesome. And uh, now we're moving forward. Yeah. So, one of the things that we're doing is we're going through Dan Kimball's book, How Not to Read the Bible. Uh, and this yeah. is going to be a sermon series for the next couple of weeks. Um, now, some people don't know this. Jay, but you used to work with Dan Kimball. You guys co-led a vintage faith together for quite a few number of years and have been friends yeah. for even longer. So yeah, um, years. This- yeah, well, Dan's got tons of connections. I mean, uh, Josh Fox helped start vintage faith with Dan and uh, Steve Clifford and Dan served together at Santa Cruz Bible for like, that's right. Years. Yeah. So, so it goes yeah, back. Like family. yeah, we're family. It's exciting. Um, so people who don't exactly know the story of Dan is Dan, kind of came to prominence reaching young people, uh, college students and young people um, in Santa Cruz, which was is a different different environment than probably anywhere else in the United States. It was just yeah, kind of a... Yeah. yeah, so it's a different place. And he he's still passionate about this. He's still, he's still... The Vintage Faith is at the base of University of Santa Cruz. The church has a coffee shop where students from Santa Cruz frequent that come to yeah. study... I mean, it's a thing. It's a, and it's a heartbeat of Dan. Yeah. And and I'd love for you to tell me uh, from based on your knowledge of him and what was going on, why he wrote this book because that gets us into the why of why we're doing the sermon series. So what's going on? Why was this book necessary? How not to read the Bible? And then the subtitle is making sense of the anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy-sounding parts of Scripture. So, yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, this is a big, big thing he's doing. So why, why, why this book and what was Dan trying to accomplish? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you said it, Dave, and you know, Dan really well too. You've, you've spoken at Vintage a bunch, you know, Vintage. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, Dan's always had a heart for emerging generations um, and he's been faithfully serving in local church ministry for like 30 years now. And that heartbeat has never gone away. It's never waned. He still cares very deeply. And he tells the story of how, you know, if you asked him 20 years ago, uh, what the most, what he thought would be the most important thing for the future of the church in terms of just pragmatics, he would have told you an emphasis on the arts, you know, an emphasis on creativity, on allowing uh, creatives and artists to really flourish and use their gifts to further the mission of the church. 
And he says, now, if you ask him the same question, while he still values the arts and creativity, of course, if you know him, you know that that's a high, high value for him. His answer has shifted because the cultural tides have shifted a bit. And he says emphatically that he thinks one of the most um, important practical steps that the local church needs to take because of our cultural moment now is to retell the story of the Bible in such a way that's really compelling that can deconstruct some of the really dangerous caricatures there are out there about God and about Jesus based on the Bible. So yeah. it, at the beginning of this book, um, How Not to Read the Bible, he uh, has a chapter that I think he calls, um, you know, Becoming an Atheist by Reading the Bible. And that title is based on a real relationship he has he tells the story, and, and I know personally firsthand of, of this relationship, of a college student who grew up in a Christian home, grew up um, considering himself a faithful follower of Jesus, super involved in his youth group, uh, went to church all the time, you know, read the Bible, did all the Bible studies, um, listened to all the sermons, took notes, all of that stuff. And he got to college and he found a website, like this really weird website. I mean, it's like not even a well-done website called evilbible.com. Huh. And I think the website is still up. If you go to evilbible.com, what the Right now, just up, go to www.evilbible.com. <laughs> yeah. And the, it's scary in some ways because the, it, they just extract all these verses from the Bible that sound on the surface evil. I mean, they really sound evil and, and not just evil. They make God sound evil. Like these verses about God, you know, um, essentially commanding his people to massacre entire towns and cities of men, women, and children, you know? And uh, anyways, this kid um, became an atheist. He, to this day, he still considers himself an atheist because he realized that while he had all the feel-good Christian moments of going to summer camps and stuff, he was never confronted with all of this other stuff in the scriptures that sound insane and uh he was never able to reconcile that that is one story of many stories that dan has and that i have um of of young people in particular but people of all ages actually who have begun uh reading parts of scripture that you don't find on coffee mugs as encouragement you know i'm not talking about jeremiah 29 11 that god has a plan for your life you know plan to prosper you that or really I can nice. do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah. It's Ephesians, or, right? Yeah, or God so loved the world, you guys, that he gave yeah. us one and only yeah. These are other verses, like God commands the Israelites, go into Jericho, massacre every man, woman, child. And then God says things like, leave no one alive. You know, like kill them all, essentially. And that's just one of so many examples. So um, that's real. And if it's not real for you, uh, I guarantee it is real for people in your life. Um, that's a real concern. Uh, and, and not just for people who are already living as those who, who didn't believe in God. It's, it's an issue for them for sure. But it is an issue for those who grew up uh, with a semblance of faith. And now they're walking away from their faith because they're actually beginning to read the Bible in its entirety. And so we thought it'd be important for us not to shy away from that tension in the scriptures, but to, to like confront it head on. Cause I believe, and you believe that as we do, um, we're actually going to discover 
even an even more robust and rich faith in a God who actually does love us in spite of what some of these verses might portray on the surface. You said retell the story of the Bible in a way that deconstructs some of the ways it's been portrayed. You're basically saying we need to deconstruct the deconstruction. We need to, yeah. to, to, to go at it. It reminds me a while ago, uh, my, this is a silly example, so forgive me. But uh, my buddy was, um, he, he was at film school. And one of the things they had to do was take a movie and using music, reshoot a trailer for that film and make it uh, totally opposite. So he took The Shining and made it into a fun family comedy about a dad connecting with his kid. Totally. Now, if, if you know anything about The Shining, it is a horrific Stephen King horror film starring Jack Nicholson. It is, and he had children. (laughs) Do not, do not. And then, um, and then I, it, it, so the idea is that yes, these scenes are in there, but the way that you portray them and the way that you undergird them and how you present them can give you an entirely false sense of what this is about. Another example from that class, and I think Kimball's even talked about this, was they reshot Mary Poppins as a horror film. Because she like comes on the wind and she's a witch and so the children are scared and it was it's, it's scary you can YouTube but it's called Scary Mary and it's really <laughs> creepy yeah Scary Mary uh, so anyway so that's basically what you're saying here is that these bits and pieces of the Bible are sliced are in there but they're sliced together in ways that are not just uncharitable to the overall yeah. story but untrue. And it's time for us to deconstruct the deconstructions. It's time for us to be thoughtful in presenting the, the whole story. So that, yeah. that's, that's, that's a great example. Yeah, that's a great example of movie trailers. You know, like how many times have you seen a trailer, been super amped about a movie, and then you go to the movie and it's a giant letdown? Or vice versa, you see a, a trailer and you're like, eh, whatever. But then, you know, a friend kind of forces you to watch it and you're like, wow. That was incredible. And you take that to the extremes, like the examples you just used, not only can you sort of misconstrue the quality of the film, you could actually change the narrative of what the film is about. You could take a frightening film, The Shining, and make it a kid's movie. And you could take a kid's movie, a warm, fuzzy kid's movie like Mary Poppins, and make it a horror film, depending on because what are trailers? They are not the entire story. They are just snippets. Um, yeah. Snippets. My, me, almost like memes, you know? Totally. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. That, you know, we live in a meme culture and it's the same deal. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you two other questions about this because one of the things that I think does cause tension, and I've seen this a lot in the church and especially with Christians, is um, this hostility toward the Bible um, leads to a sense of alienation. Like our culture, is hostile toward this book that we, we believe is, is really important and the very word of God. And so sometimes that posture um, of hostility can cause people to be defensive. And what's interesting about Dan if is Dan's kind of, a, well, you are too, but you're this ninja way of uh, engaging these uh, very real objections, very honest objections with non-defensiveness, mm. with honesty, and a posture of friendship and openness. Not that it's always going to be reciprocated, but mm. there's a sense of relationship. And that's one of the other things I love is as we are in a, a, a culture that is 
in some ways, in some cases, hostile toward Christians and, and yeah. toward the Christian message. It's like we're we're deconstructing what people think of when they think of Christians by the posture and the way that we're explaining this. Does that make sense? It's like yeah. there's a deconstruction given with the message, but there's also a deconstruction of the messenger. Is that also part of your goal here is to help people enter into this with both, um, not humility might not be the right word, but it might be uh, kindness, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. thoughtfulness, friendship, yeah. non-hostility, non-defensiveness. Because if you know yeah. Dan, there's really not, there's, there's really not any of that when he, when he's with students or with really with anyone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the way you just said it, um, you know, about posture and uh, the, the way, yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly spot on and that's exactly how Dan is, you know, even if you're saying something that is so counter to uh, the belief systems of the person you're saying it to, man, our posture has this like incredible power to disarm, you know, yeah. we've all experienced that. And, um, and actually, even when you on the opposite end, even if your differences are very slight, if your posture is one of antagonism, there's a, you know, there's a high potential of just building walls that are so unnecessary that don't even exist. So yeah, I, I hope that that have is you ever seen that Jay, like on Twitter, people build unnecessary <laughs> walls over slight differences. That's strange. Never. That's uh, ever, I've never ever. seen that. <laughs> it's a warm and kind and generous place where all are welcome. And embraced with love. Oh man, <laughs> social media—just um, so, bringing so, the world together. So. <laughs> One loving tweet at a time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, we're laughing at it because it's such a. I mean, we live in an outrage culture division, and so yeah. this is a posture. Uh, well, think about it. Twitter and all these memes are simplistic, divisive me mechanisms. We're talking about yeah. getting away from simplistic into nuance and depth. We're talking yeah. about getting away from division into connection and authentic relationship and believing that God can actually use us as we are thoughtful and kind and generous yeah. and orthodox and yes. nuanced and deep in our theology to actually yeah. do some neat work with the people around us um, yeah. and be a different sort of, uh, the biblical word for this is witness, a witness yeah. to the true story of Jesus, not just yeah. a witness in what the Bible says, but witness to the very character of Jesus as we pro proclaim it. And it's, it's fascinating. So this is just um, kind of more ammunition for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah. You're okay. Spot on. Yep. So, yes. So as we get into this, uh, one of the things I wanted to also ask you about is um, just the idea of, because the week one is how not to read the Bible. Never, you know, it's about what the Bible is. It's about not reading verses out of context. Um, yeah. It's about reading. And one yeah. of the things that is interesting, I'm a former English teacher, uh, and I've yeah. I've seen it, and I have two kids who are in high school. I've seen a real um, lack, uh, a, a loss of deep reading. Yeah, I mean, we we are, as a society read a lot. I mean, you think about the internet, but you could make a case we don't read deeply as much yeah. as we used to. So my my yeah. son and my wife right now are reading All Quiet on the Western Front. It's a World War One novel. And they're going through that. They're picking out the themes. And then after that, um, we're, we, we're going to watch 1917, that the film, you know. Oh, wow. uh, and so kind of going yeah. through the themes of World War One of loss. And it's a horrific book. It's traumatizing. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, very, it's very awful. But as we're doing this reading, I'm realizing how different that form of reading is than a blog post. 
as good yeah. as a blog post is. Um, yeah. Let's talk about literacy and the modern world and Christians, because I think yeah. that that might also be, I know that sounds strange because I'm like, well, I'm an English teacher, so everything's literacy, but it does seem important in this day and age. Um, how do you feel about that going forward? And is that also part of your goal for Christian formation going forward in not just Westgate, but I guess broader Christendom? Yeah, that's a great question. I agree with you totally. I think that we are losing something in the digital age uh, when it comes to our aptitude and our appetite for long format, slow and steady reading. We certainly read a lot. If you count uh, social media and mm -hmm. clickbaity news articles and, um, you know, celebrity gossip, uh, that sort of thing, you know, or sports box scores. Oh, I mean, totally. If, if, if we count that as reading, we are reading a lot. Uh, what we're not doing, though, um, and there's, there's data to bear this out, what we're not doing is immersing ourselves in uh, the other, it's a totally different type of experience uh, of reading a long format book that takes you on a journey. Yeah. Um, the recent uh, recent uh, statistics say that um, uh, I, I forget who it was. I think it was like maybe Pew Research Center. Several years ago, they did a, a survey, a nationwide survey with like tens of thousands of participants uh, about reading. And basically one of the findings was 25% of Americans. So one in four American adults, uh, this was just a few years ago, admit, these are the ones who admit it, admit to not having read a single book beginning to end in the last year, yeah. one in four. Now, yeah. here's the yeah. thing. Some of us hear that statistic and we think to ourselves, well, okay, yeah, that sounds right. That's not a big deal. And that's a problem. It's a problem because it actually sounds normative to not read a book for an entire year, like not one book. Now, I want to be careful here in, in the sense that like some people have a hard time reading, you know, like, and I get that, but technology has afforded us other ways. I mean, there's audio books, there's, uh, you know, there's so many things you can do. Um, so you, you count audio books in, in terms of learning, right? Would you? Well, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the Pew Research uh, uh, survey included audiobooks. Like oh, not even interesting. So one in four, not only had not read like an actual book sitting down, but like hadn't even listened to an entire book beginning to end. So right. think about that one in four American adults. Not So what, what are they doing? Cause the reality is all Netflix. Them, Jay, all Netflix. Us, yeah. I mean, that, that's true. That is what it is, you know? So, and I think that's problematic, particularly for followers of Jesus, because as uh, one scholar puts it, Christians have been since the beginning, people of the book. Mm, um, that's true. The yeah. late great theologian Larry Hurtado, he's a historian. Larry Hurtado said that. Uh, and he's a major Christian historian, that the Christians have always been a people of the book. What he meant was that our faith is deeply intrinsically connected to this library of books that we call the Bible. And yeah. the reality yeah. is this, life verses are super good. And reading a verse here and there for encouragement, super awesome. But they're awesome as supplemental, uh, supplemental sort of exercises to the Christian faith. So yeah. you can think of like vitamins, right? Like my wife and I take vitamins every day. But if all we took were vitamins, we'd be in trouble. 
Like if we weren't actually, you have to eat the food, right? Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of us are doing as Christians. We're just chewing some, you know, vitamins, but not actually sitting down for the meal. And so I hope that this series can kind of move us in that direction. You, when you were writing Analog Church, you talked about this. Now you're writing a new book, Analog Christian. Now it's not out yet, but one of the things that you talked about is a book that influenced you about how to read. And it actually, I think, was titled "How to How to Read a Book." Right? That was the yeah. title of the book. How to right? read a book. Yeah, how to read a book. It's like a book from the late seventies, I think, by Bremer Adler and Charles Van Doren. But it's like it's an iconic book, um, and super helpful. Yeah. So okay, now there are four main lessons in this. Uh, these guys kind of outline just real basic. And the reason why it's important to go through this, I think, is because it actually helps us with all reading including yeah. the Bible, which is a work of literature and the same principles that work for reading other forms of literature, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Melville's Moby Dick also help us when it comes to reading scripture. And so let's just go through those four. Uh, do you want me to read them or do you want to do, I, do you have them in front of you? Do you want me to read them or do you want to read them? Yeah. Well, no, you're the former English teacher. So you, you should talk <laughs> us through these. And, well, okay. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know about they're that. They're simple, but, okay. but they're helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you each one. I'm going to go through them and then you're, and then you tell me what your thoughts on number one, what is the book about as a whole? So when you're reading a book, the first thing you have to do is ask the question, what is the book about as a whole? Why is that helpful for scripture? Yeah. I mean, this one gets at the whole point of the teaching, you know, as we started this series, we talked about how the Bible is, um, it is a library of books. It is a single book in that, you know, our friend Tim Mackey at the Bible Project, he says, the Bible is a unified story, singular, leading to Jesus. Um, so it is a singular story. So in some senses, it is a book. But it is a book comprised of many books, you know, yeah. 66 of them, in fact, written over the course of potentially 1500 years in three different languages by people who lived across uh, a couple continents you know, the yeah. world at the time. So um, it's a library of books. So for us to be able to get uh, the picture of the entire story, the unified story of the Bible, we have to, I mean, it's pretty common sense, but we forget this a lot. We have to know what the entire story is saying. And, um, you know, uh, in the book, How to Read a Book, they have this quote, you have to try to discover the leading theme of the book and how the author, in this case of the Bible, the authors develop this theme in an orderly way by subdividing it into its essential subordinate themes or topics. I mean, that summarizes it right there. That is what the Bible is. There is one theme, it's leading to Jesus and what Jesus, what God is up to in the world and in our lives through Jesus and the spirit. Um, and it's subdivided into various sort of sub-themes and topics to paint the singular picture. And yeah. if we don't do the hard work of, of getting that singular picture of the single story, we'll never mm -hmm. truly understand what all these subdivided parts are really about. This is one of the reasons why Karina, uh, one of our pastors on staff, has launched um, Bible 365 that you and I are a part of, where we got like a couple dozen people, I think, in our church who are reading the entire Bible over the course of the year, because we're trying to do this. We're trying to understand what this book is about yeah. as a whole. And I think and that's the story. what I love about it is they'll post like questions and they'll say, Hey, this really yeah. hit me. And as, as they're going through this, they're seeing, Oh, this theme's repeated. 
oh, we've seen this one before. And we're just, yeah. I, we're still in Genesis. Um, yeah. Next one, they said, okay, what's the book about as a whole is the first question. The second question you got to ask of any text is what is being said in detail and how? Basically, what is the author trying to get your attention to and how are they getting yeah. your attention to it? Now, how does that relate to scripture? Yeah, well, I'll use another one of their quotes. So what they, what the way they explain this, they say, you have to try to discover the main ideas, assertions, and arguments that constitute the author's particular message. So essentially what this means is we all have to become, for those who know the Enneagram, when we read the Bible, we have to all sort of revert to a bit of an Enneagram five. You know, we got to be driven by the sort of detective in us, you know, not that it's a mystery to be solved necessarily, but in some ways it is, you know, again, yeah. 66 books written in several languages in, in ancient culture written over the course of 1500 years. We just have to admit that there is going to be stuff in here that we're not going to be able to recognize and be familiar with right up right off the bat. But with the right amount of work, we can become familiar with some of this stuff. And when we do, it'll come alive, you know? And so this second point about writing a book really is a call to do the work. You know, yeah. we would like for the Bible to be uh, easy and neat and tidy. We would like for the Bible to be one encouraging verse that speaks incredible life into us as we begin our day. And the Bible is that. But it will become that in much more rich and robust and meaningful ways when we put in the work. So yeah. um, I think that's what this is getting at. When we engage the Bible, let's be willing to do the work, dig into the details, ask the questions um, so that it comes alive in, in brand new ways. Um, in my in my class, whenever we had a new book or a new novel, new play, whatever we had, I'd hold it up and I'd say, listen, inside here is something worth more than gold. But we, and the author is telling us he's hidden it though, or she has hidden it. And we have to do the work of unlocking it. And if we do, it's like a little, now they've, they've not hidden it so much that we can't find it, but they have hidden it. And we have to do the work because they will not reward lazy. They, yeah. this is too valuable for them to, to, to do, but they have left us a, a key. And then going through the course and seeing the students unlock that a lot of times they'd never done that before. And it is, uh, and that's just like literature and literature is great. Listen, literature is great, but the Bible is the very word of God. Like this is the greatest work of literature. So literature yeah. is awesome. I love it, but it's like the Bible is even better than that. Okay. Next yeah. up is uh, the third question we have to ask these um, Mortimer, Admir, sorry, Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren say is, is the book true in whole or in part? So is the book true that here they're trying to, to uh, assess the aesthetic of truthfulness yeah. in the work? Okay, so explain that. How's yeah. that related? It, yeah, there's a lot to be said here, and I'll try to be concise. And, and actually, we're going to dig into some of this stuff in more detail as we go topic by topic throughout the series. When Adler and Van Doren wrote this book, they're talking about books in general. So when they say, is the book true, what they don't mean is, is that work of fiction actually nonfiction? <laughs> so what they don't mean is when you right. read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Melville's Moby Dick, did that actually historically happen? Because if it didn't, trash that book. They're not saying like only read nonfiction. They're asking the question about truth in a much larger, broader way. Is it true to human experience? Does it have something true 
to say. Now, the reason I mention that is because when it comes to the Bible, uh, the question of is it true, I think sometimes gets very narrow, meaning I think sometimes people ask, is the Bible true from only one slice of the word truth, meaning is it historically uh, post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution meaning of true? Can I prove it through the scientific method sort of true? And all of us, I think, if you just give it just a moment of thought, we would unequivocally answer the question, well, no, it's not true in that way. Because if you read the Psalms, it tells me that uh, we're supposed to be like deer who pant for water. Is that literally true? If I'm a Christian, do I actually magically turn into a deer? that runs to a, 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 you know, a river and God is in that river. I mean, no, of course not. It's poetry. So truth is, is more than just science. Although it is science as well. I think what we have to do is ask the question, is this true of human experience? And is it true of God's character and what he is up to in the world? And I, I, I don't apply that to everything. There are sections of scripture, large sections of scripture that are historically true, like scientifically true. Yeah, right. For example, the primary one, like, and this is important to say, because I don't want people to misunderstand the resurrection of Jesus. We believe at Westgate, I believe personally, and all Orthodox Christians throughout history have believed when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that is literally true. An he actual historical fact, right? Yes. Physically came back from the dead in physical body, right? But for an, another body. example might be like an allegory of Jesus, though. When he yes. tells a story about uh, uh, the, 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 the shepherd who goes out and leaves the 99 to get the one, is, is yeah. he referring to an actual shepherd who actually had 100 actual sheep? no. <laughs> But what, but what is he saying here? Is in, so in that sense is the sense they're trying to get us to evaluate um, is what Melville, Melville saying about the human condition true? Is what Twain yeah. or Tan or Morrison saying about, or yeah. Shakespeare or is, or is what they're saying about the, the book true? They're trying to get yeah. you to mind, not if it's true, but what's true about it, right? That's the idea. Yes. So when yes. we apply that, so we shouldn't, maybe that question is, instead of saying, is the Bible true, say, what is true about this and how is it true? That might be yeah. a better way to, to do this. Um, yeah. Just because, you know, we do believe that the Bible is not just true, but true. That Jesus did live and was resurrected, but also his stories illustrate a deep, deep truth that's truer than the hardest concrete under your feet right so there's that right absolutely yep and so that yeah. leads us to the fourth question which i love what of it yeah what what does that mean what so, so uh, basically they're saying so what what's this matter so as yeah, you read so a book what? of literature you're asking the question what's true about this and then the next question is what does this mean for me right so yeah. how does that question inform us in 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 scripture yeah i think that question is everything especially when it comes to scripture yeah um Without that question, so what, what of it? How does this impact my actual life and what my dealings in the world? If we don't ask that question and we just live with questions one, two, and three, we become Pharisees. You know, mm. we become uh, the, the intellectual elite 
who know everything there is to know, but it has absolutely no bearing yeah. on our actual lives and no bearing um, on how we live. World. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is where the spirit of God is so, so critically important. And it, the spirit of God moving in and through us, illuminating our hearts and minds as we engage the scriptures is critically important for the entire process, you know, steps one, two, three, and four. But it is when we get to step four, we ask the so what question, we have to lean into God's spirit within us and say, okay, God, by your spirit, spark something in me and um, give me the strength and the courage and the faith and the trust, you know, to live um, in light of what, what your story is revealing about me and about the world and about you. And I think it's, it's the most important question. And it's critically important even as we journey through this series, because so much of the series is going to feel like a mental ascent. And I think we're going to have some light bulb moments together. And we're going to be like, wow, this is amazing. I know more about the Bible. I understand more about the Bible. Uh, but neither of those things really matter un unless we ask this question. So in light of our newfound knowledge, so what? How does that change our lives? And uh, we've got to answer that question, uh, if anything is going to mean anything. Yeah. It reminds me of the sermon series we just came out of before Easter and, and First Thessalonians. We talked about the parousia, the return yeah. of Jesus. This was kind of the main emphasis of Paul. And he's saying this has to change the way that you view everything, death, your own life, the way you're living now. What does it mean yeah. that Jesus is going to return as the king to set things right? That's one example of many um, that the Bible is asking us, um, that, that it's really powerful. I, I had a thought as, as you were, as you were saying this, it, it's, it, I think I know how you're going to answer this. Cause I think I know you, is this an individual exercise for the personal Christian, or is this a corporate exercise to do in community? Oh man. Great question. Yeah. I, I could talk for another hour about this. I, reading the Bible up until 500 years ago, there was no such thing as reading the Bible alone, right? Until Gutenberg created the printing press, that wasn't like a part of the Christian experience. Biblical engagement was always communal. And fascinatingly enough, it was always communal for extended periods of time because the only way you would engage the scriptures would be to go to your house church or your local church in the time of Jesus, to go to your synagogue, and spend hours upon hours hearing the word of God read aloud uh, in long, long stretches uh, because nobody had Bibles at home. So we, I think we've lost a little bit of that or a lot of that in that communalness, years. the idea. That, yeah, because that, yeah, totally. Cause how many of us have like seven Bibles at home that are collecting dust and, and then almost all of us have Bibles also just on our phones, you know? And, yeah, yeah. Um, so it becomes a very personal individual exercise, as it well should be. We should take advantage of that gift. Uh, you know, there's not a single mature, faithful follower of Jesus I know that I deeply admire and respect. I'm talking about like the sages in my life, you know, those who followed Jesus for decades and are thriving by his spirit there's not a yeah. single one of those men and women that i know who don't spend extended individual time with the lord through scripture on almost or at least yeah on a on a daily basis yeah so that's important and i would highly encourage that but i don't think 
I think we're missing something if we read the Bible only on our own. Yeah. That's why, again, I'll plug it again, the Bible 365, where That's people great. do read it on their own, but they gather together to discuss their readings yeah. Yeah. every yeah. It's week. Really fun. You know? It's so... It's. It, I think that's the way the Bible was intended to be engaged, you know, both individually but also communally. So yeah, I hope people. So will it's take got, that to just heart. like English class, man. You got to do the reading at home, but when you come into class, then it's class discussion, and you get to open this book up and see and unlock it in a, in a yeah. real way. That's kind. Of, you got to do the reading at home, but you also it's the joy of the class, the joy of being together in that in that community to talk about these ideas. Yeah, and it's Final so thought. yeah fun. Sorry, it's so awesome. It's like, so great. It's, you've never it's my favorite thing. That. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is amazing and life-changing. And so I would so encourage you just a pastoral word, like email us, email Karina, if you're interested in Bible 365, email any of us, if you want to like plug into a life group. Uh, we also have a lab going on during this series, how to read the Bible. Oh, that's you right. Know, yeah. yeah that Liz Diddy and some other leaders at our church are going to be a part of, man, jump in dive into the scriptures with other people. It'll change your life. Final thought, Jay, just uh, where are we going with this? Uh, where, uh, in the coming weeks, just give us a quick preview of kind of the stuff that we're going to be diving into. Um, what yeah. are we deconstructing? You know, what are oh, we going to deconstruct the deconstructing? Yeah, it, this is going to be so fun, you guys, and just really lighthearted, fun, easy topics like why does the Bible promote slavery? Is the, is, is the Bible is the Bible antithetical to science and modern science? Um, is the Bible misogynistic? Why does the Bible tell women to not speak and cover their heads and don't say a word and whatever? Why why is there so much violence in the Bible? Not just from the bad guys, but from the characters that are supposed to be the good guys. Why does God instruct his people to march into Jericho and kill every man, woman, child and to leave no living thing behind? Like why why, you know? So that's kind of where we're going wow. and uh, it's a lot. I can't wait. I can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be so fun. Make sure and keep coming back cuz we're going to have some fun. Jay, I'm super excited about this. I'm super excited. I think this is going to be a blast and um, I'm looking forward to it. So thanks for stopping by and uh, we'll talk to, we'll see you guys next week when we dive into, I guess, the first of these major topics. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> I want to thank Jay Kim for stopping by. Join us next week as we dive head first into the fray and examine the controversial question, is the Bible pro-slavery? This has been one of the criticisms that's been leveled against it. We're going to examine that next week. So join us for week two of How Not to Read the Bible.